0: Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood, the usual serving of two guests today. In a minute, Ryan Grimm will tell us about the state of the Republican Party. And at the bottom of the hour, Rachel Sherman reports in her study the thoughts and feelings of the rather rich. First, D.C. The Republican Party looks chaotic and took a drubbing in Tuesday's elections, yet at the same time they control all three branches of the federal government. Most saliently at the moment, they're trying to pass a tax bill partly so that they can say they passed something, and partly so they can shower business in the very rich with billions and cuts. Among other things, they're proposing to eliminate or reduce the mortgage interest deduction, deductions for state and local taxes, important in high-tax states like New York and California, and even eliminate the tax exemption on graduate school fellowships. Can they do it? And what is the overall state of the Republican Party anyway? Here's Ryan Grimm, Washington correspondent for The Intercept, to tell us. By the way, after we recorded this the other day, Senate Republicans came up with their own tax bill that would completely eliminate, in contrast with the House bill which would only partly eliminate, the state and local tax deduction. Okay, here's Ryan Grimm. Uh, Ryan, I've been reading an awful lot about how the Republican Party is falling apart, uh, that you know, the, the, the strains uh, of dealing with Trump, but also the strains within the congressional delegation are uh, proving impossible and everything is just going to hell. Is that how you read things?
1: Well, I don't know about falling apart because there's always going to be some you know organized unit that's going to be able to do the bidding of people that have billions of dollars. so, so I don't know how badly it can it can ultimately fall apart, but if their job is to pass some sort of agenda through uh, Congress that they control and have a president that they, that's in their party sign it then then they are failing miserably at that that that's for sure I mean this is They're getting as much done as, say, Barack Obama did in, like, 2013, yet they control everything. Some of that hyperbole is is fair.
0: For a while, it looked like they weren't going to be able to do a tax bill. Now it looks like they're doing a tax bill. What's happening with that thing?
1: I don't know if they're going to get this tax bill. I think they'll get a tax bill. If I had to put money on it, I bet it winds up being kind of a modest middle-class tax cut with some kind of billionaire tax cuts that they sneak through. But not not the huge corporate tax cut that they're that they're talking about right now. It's just they have too many problems with their members in California and New York and New Jersey and Illinois, you know. And that's just enough to kind of not give them much much room to to maneuver. You know, when Bush did his tax cuts, all he did was cut. Uh, he did not try to balance anything out by closing any loopholes. And when you or deductions, or credits, or anything else, and so when you come after the deductions, then then you get people's backs up, and so uh, you know the kind of people that are voting Republican are getting whacked uh, on the property tax stuff, on the state income tax stuff, on the mortgage interest deduction. All you know, all of this stuff is very understandable and tactile to to people, and so the, people are going to have a hard time going through. Like Darrell Issa just the other day said, he's not going to go for this, so I think you could see a jailbreak. Of uh, California Republicans uh, from, from that. And they can maybe squeak it through and lose their liberalish, ish moderate uh, Republicans, but it's very close.
0: Well, they can't really spare a vote, can they?
1: Not really. I mean, they've got about 20, 21 people who care a ton about this state and local property tax issue, and they can lose 23 votes. You know, theoretically, they could lose all of them. And, and if, if they held every single other person, move it through. But, you know, that's a difficult task.
0: Uh, now they tried to um, hold this bill back, keeping it secret, so the lobbyists didn't move for a long time. And now, now the lobbyists are on the move, right?
1: Right. And the public and the lobbyists, and in many ways, they are very much united uh, right now. I had a friend reach out to me and say, "How do I, uh, you know, how do I make a contribution to the, the Home Builders Association?" Uh, you know, because this is a guy who's like looking at this, t- looking at this bill and thinking like this is going to hurt my property values this is gonna this is gonna make my house worth less uh, and he's right you know if this bill passed as it is the effect would be probably to knock housing prices down some 10 percent across the board maybe in the end that's that's good policy maybe they're being propped up too much uh, but you know for people that own homes which is a majority of the country they're freaking them out so the realtors and the home builders and and the construction folks, you know, all of these people that have a lot of sway, sway in Washington now have an actual grassroots army that, that they're mobilizing uh, on, on their behalf. It's, it's not like a fake AstroTurf anger. It's, it's people who are like, wait, wait a minute. You're taking, you're taking what away? And, and even liberals who might say, well, the mortgage interest deduction is, is gross anyway. They don't really want to see it go away just so that you can get rid of the estate tax.
0: As a uh, homeowner in Brooklyn, uh, the anxiety speaks to me.
1: Yes, exactly, right. Now, you're probably not swing voter uh, either way, but the anxiety you feel is the precise same anxiety being felt by people who vote uh, Republican regularly.
0: But this is like aimed at a very core Republican constituency, affluent suburbanites. Like, what are they thinking?
1: Part of it is uh, parliamentary, that they are allowed by the rules of reconciliation to increase the deficit over ten years by one and a half trillion dollars and that's not enough for them they want to give to corporations and billionaires significantly more than 1.5 trillion dollars even after the gimmicks that that mean it's really more like two or 2.5 they want to go well above that see the only way to go only way to go well above that is to find money somewhere else that balances it on the other side and the people that have the money are this core Republican Constituency of exurbanite, suburbanite homeowners—that's who they have to hit to pay the one percent.
0: So they're hitting like the 85th and 90th percentile to uh, give the the 99th percentile even more money.
1: Yeah, they're probably hitting—I'd say like yes, something like that—the 70th to the 90th to to pay the the top one.
0: <laughs> that seems like very bad electoral logic. Who is the genius behind this, Bill?
1: Paul Ryan, who has been oversold uh, on his genius. For his entire career, uh, and you're now seeing it. Whenever his, his visions that he conjured up you know, while, while reading Ayn Rand are actually put into practice, they, they fall apart. His attempt to write a budget, his, his attempt to do health care reform were all uh, fine you know, when he was presenting them to a Cato audience, but they, the, the numbers just don't add up. And so in order to make his numbers add up, he had to milk the, <laughs> these people who have no interest in being milked.
0: And what about the Senate side? Could this get through the Senate?
1: It's really tough on the Senate side. Because like you, you know, they've got 52 Republicans. You have two who are uh, resigning in, <laughs> practically in protest from Trump, you know, uh, Bob Corker and, and Flake. Bob Corker is made all of his money in real estate. He's a developer. And he has also said he doesn't want to see the deficit increase as a result of a tax cut. So he's got, he's got both his kind of principled reason that he can point to, and in his gut, a developer loves tax credits and tax breaks and property tax deductions and mortgage deductions. Like he, like that, that speaks to his core even more than it speaks to yours. Uh, and in the meantime, he's been calling Donald Trump an infant who needs a daycare. Jeff Flake, when he left, said that Trump, if you don't speak out against him, your, your, your conscience needs to be called into question. Uh, and then we haven't even gotten to people like uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who may have blown all of their courage on on the Obamacare vote, but are by no means easy gets there. And then you've got somebody like even a Dean Heller, who's very vulnerable in in Nevada. Uh, you know, does does he want to take a, a an unpopular vote? And you've got McCain, who has shown a willingness to you know s- stick it in Trump's eye. By no means um, is is a sure thing. In the uh, Senate, either.
0: And what about all these people who are uh, residing, retiring from Congress? Is this an unusually large number?
1: Yes, and and it, it, look for a bunch more. Yeah. All right. So, yes, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a large number, but it's expected when they when you're when you're looking at a wave. You know, why go through the hassle of the you know five hours a day on the phone raising money, all the chicken dinners, all the glad handing when it when it looks like you're probably going to lose in a year and a half uh when instead you can start thinking about your next job now and then enjoy your next year and a half and just relax and you know hit hit the links and and that gives the party an opportunity if you if you announce now it gives the party an opportunity to uh you know have a competitive primary or you know find a find somebody to replace you but after what happened uh tuesday night particularly in virginia you're going to see a a lot more people look at their numbers and say all I squeaked by, you know, by five or six points in uh, 2016, and now you're seeing these like 10 to 15 point swings that knocks you out. So that, that makes you start thinking like, okay, what, what am I doing next with my life?
0: Yeah, you anticipated my next question, uh, the election on Tuesday. Oh, I was a little surprised that uh, you were saying that they're expecting some kind of wave election. So that was the assumption in, in, among many Republicans before Tuesday, and now that assumption is deepening?
1: Yes, publicly, Republicans have been very good at every time that there's been a special election that has shown a 10, 15, 20, 30. Even there have been some with 40 point swings in some House districts around, you know, state, state House districts around the country, all going in that direction. And Republicans have been very good about saying, "Well, these are just special elections, and they don't prove anything. And you can always find uh, a special election. You know, Democrats won." A uh, special election in upstate New York in, in like 2009 or early 2010, and then they got wiped out badly in the Tea Party wave of 2010. And so, people will just point to that over and over again and say, "Don't worry, uh, don't worry about what's what what you're seeing. Uh, we're going to be fine in in 2018." That's their public face, but pri- privately for months, Republicans have been have been sensing that there is that there is a wave coming. What's interesting about Virginia. In particular, there was a 32-seat deficit in the House of Delegates that might be erased once the once the recounts are, are done, which which nobody saw coming. But it points to the one flaw in the kind of the engineering of gerrymandering, which is that it requires uh, uh, consistency. So you, you know, in order to gerrymander effectively, you have to distribute all of these districts in in a way that gives you a comfortable advantage of, let's say, like 53-47 or, you know, 54-46. So you're going to win, but you're not going to win by a ton, because if you give yourself a 20-point advantage in a district, then the, then the district next to you is either Democratic or a swing district. But the problem is if you make them all within five or six points, then that's within striking distance of a wave. So if you have a 10 to 15-point to swing then all of those people get washed out and that's why that's how you saw a guy backed by dsa beat the the whip majority whip last night that nobody saw coming but you know he gets he gets lifted over the top by by this wave. tom Periello back in 2010 uh... he ran as kind of a lefty in a swing district in uh, charlottesville virginia uh, and then ran for reelection did hundreds and hundreds of town halls was extremely popular back at home, did everything right in his campaign and he ended up only losing by four or five points where, while a bunch of blue dogs lost by say 15 points, but he still lost. Like at some point the, the dynamics you know overpower your individual ability to campaign. and so I think people are, are recognizing that you know depending on what happens between now and next year that it could be one of those years.
0: I'm speaking with Ryan Grimm, who's a Washington correspondent for The Intercept. And who are they blaming? Are they blaming Trump?
1: Well, part partly Trump and partly history, that, that almost every midterm after an election of a new president it gives gives a backlash. You know, Obama got it. Uh, Bush didn't get it because of 9-11 that dis- disrupted that. But Clint, Clinton got it. Reagan got it before him. It's just part of the psyche of the, of the voting public for whatever reason. Uh, But Trump has rapidly become the least popular president in modern modern history, so that certainly uh, plays a role too.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to expect uh, routine losses uh, in the second year of a presidential term, but uh, if you're talking about a wave that would drive people into a a different career, that's a whole different ball of wax. Right, yes. And is this going to change their behavior on legislation? I mean, and also this tax bill. Is that, uh, well, yes, the, uh, the election returns due to uh, the prospects of the tax bill.
1: It cuts a couple ways. Uh, you know, the, the flip side of what I was saying earlier would be that, and you hear a lot of people on Capitol Hill saying this, that, that they feel like this is existential for them, that, like, they have to do something. Uh, and, and so their bar for, you know, what makes an acceptable product gets lower and lower because they because they feel a political necessity to do something and the and the risks are a little bit lower than with healthcare like you you pass a bad poorly thought out bill on healthcare you know you own then you own healthcare for a generation if you pass a poorly thought out tax cut bill you know the deficit soars and if you know who cares about that so the the downside risks are such that it, I think it's going to allow some members who might prefer to vote against the tax plan to just say, you know what, I'll go ahead and do this. And the more retirements you have, people who are going into re-election, you know, people talking about them as free and as liberated, but that's the opposite in some in some ways, because now they're thinking about their next job, and their next job is going to be most likely uh, somewhere in corporate America, whether it's lobbying or, or doing something else in that world. And so you know if you want to stay in the good graces of of the leadership, uh, which is the currency that you bring to K Street, then you don't really want to buck them on their on their top priority.
0: Now, what happened to these guys? They control everything. Uh, they obviously have some internal differences, but you would think they could paper them over or work them out. Why are they in in, in such a state?
1: It's kind of like a two part thing. It's one, they don't actually have a governing majority. You know, Paul Ryan. Is basically in coalition with the Freedom Caucus in order to have a majority uh, in the House, and separately, they're not really into governing. Period. Uh, Paul Ryan had a very revealing line at a press conference shortly after the first failure to pass Obamacare repeal after Trump was elected. He said, "We're," you know, said something like, "You know, we're new to governing, and this is going to take some." you know, this is going to take some practice and we're going to get there. We're going to make some mistakes along the way. They're not new to governing. We don't have a parliamentary system. You know, the Republicans have been in the majority in the House since January of 2011. That makes them a part of the government, like a ruling part of the government. And, and you could tell by the way that Paul Ryan phrased it, that they never considered themselves to be part of the government. They consider themselves to be you know, like the opposition party in a parliamentary system, waiting to knock off the ruling party and t- and fully take power. And so, because they never thought of themselves as governing, they never bothered to kind of figure out how to how to do it. And you know, it doesn't really fit with their thing anyway. They, like Republicans don't want to be doing health care. Uh, the only reason they wanted to do Obamacare repeal is to get the tax cuts that were that were that were part of it. So they you know they're they're not interested in that part of it.
0: How would things be different uh, if Trump's approval rating were you know fifty or sixty and not thirty-five or forty?
1: I think that would probably change everything. You know, in that in that world, he he never tried to repeal Obamacare. Uh, instead, he you know sat down with say Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and and forced Ryan and McConnell to do something to uh, actually make uh, Obamacare better. And this year when premiums came out, premiums were way down, subsidies were up, more people were getting covered. And people are like, wow, why couldn't somebody have done this sooner? Like, wow, this is what, you know, the problems that people have with Obamacare that the deductibles are too high, premiums are too high. And none of the uh, solutions that Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell were putting forward were going to make that better. They were all going to make them worse. So the only way for Trump to get to the numbers you're talking about, he would have had to Go to war with Ryan and McConnell over this, and and he didn't.
0: And uh, what are the Dems doing? Just watching the the show and watching them, you know, commit Harry Kari or, or they have a any kind of alternative scheme, uh, you know, set of policies or mode of governance? You
1: know, they seem to mostly just be watching them uh, commit Harry They were very worried uh, that kind of this the Steve Bannon economic populist wing of the Trump White House would be, would would win out and be able to. Push through a, a deficit-funded infrastructure bill and and some middle-class tax cuts, and you know get the economy going and get things built around the country and and um, sink Democrats' prospects. And uh, none of that happened. You know, Bannon was was pushed out. The infrastructure plan um, was was cooked up instead as as like a you know some kind of scandal-ridden private-public partnership thing that's going nowhere. Uh, and so they were worried about that. I think it would have been a great thing if it would have happened for the country. But politically, they were worried about uh, that happening. Otherwise, they're they're now in a, in a recruiting mode. You know, It's very difficult for Democrats in general to recruit good candidates in midterms because Democratic voters don't tend to come out. But beginning after the Women's March, really, uh, it became obvious to people who were thinking about running that, oh, if I run in 2018, they're, they're actually... There's a chance I could win. Uh, in the past, all of the good candidates would kind of bunch up and run in presidential years, and then they would lose two years later. But this gives them a chance to break that cycle and, and recruit, you know, actually good candidates who can then win in 2018, and then and then they have an easier reelection in 2020 because it's a presidential year. And then then they're then they've been serving two terms, and now all of a sudden they're they're the congressmen, and people know who they are, and, and maybe they can survive again.
0: And then finally, uh, the White House, of course, brings nothing to the table. They can't really knock heads together and make uh, the congressional Republicans behave and act sensibly because they can't do those things themselves, right?
1: They can't, and and Trump, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't show any interest in. Uh, I don't even want to call them details because that's, you know, in anything other than just kind of the symbolism of an of an issue. He doesn't even get anywhere where you can even see the details, uh, and that was a huge problem with. Uh, uh, Obamacare, because he would, he'd, since he knew nothing about it, he would talk to somebody like Rand Paul and say, "Rand, you know, Rand, why why don't you vote for this thing?" And Rand would say, "Well, here's X, Y, Z. Why I'm not voting for it?" And, and Trump would say, "You're nah, that that's that sounds right. I agree with you. Those those are all good points." And he'd go back then to his team and say, "Rand wants this. You know, let's do let's put this in the bill." And they'd tell him, "Look, if you put that in the bill, you lose all of these other people." Um, and he's talked publicly about this frustrating process. Of losing people by gaining people, and the same is happening with um, tax cuts. You know, not even Bush tried to do a corporate tax cut like this, just because the politics of it are so are so brutal, and and the economics of it are, are insane, because all the rich people, you know, immediately turn themselves into businesses and start taking the business tax cuts. And so, because he pays so little attention, um, he's insisting on on things that are you know, politically untenable. And then nobody takes him seriously when it, when it comes to uh, his, his threats.
0: That was Ryan Graham, who covers Washington for The Intercept. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the first movement of Brahms' Piano Trio No. 1, performed by the Florestan Trio. Next, the consciousness of the rich, something about which surprisingly little is known. Rachel Sherman, an associate professor of sociology at the New School of Manhattan, talked to 50 of them—financiers, lawyers, heirs and heiresses, stay-at-home mothers—about how they think and feel. Many of them are surprisingly troubled about their status, though they mostly live in New York City and are rather liberal for their class, and are certainly not volunteering to surrender their money. Maybe the rich of Atlanta or Irvine would talk differently. In any case, her book on the topic, Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence, is just out from Princeton University Press. It's fascinating and highly readable. Rachel Sherman. Could you start by telling us how you gathered these research uh, subjects together? Uh, How many people did you interview and how did you find them?
2: Okay, well, I interviewed ultimately uh, 50 people who are affluent and wealthy people in New York and a little bit in the New York suburbs. And I found them mostly through what we call snowball sampling, just people interviewing one person and having them recommend other people to interview. Through, And I found those initial people through a range of my own contacts, actually, um, my colleagues at the New School and in other universities, um, my friends you know, from various walks of life. It, it turns out, I mean, one thing that I think is interesting about how I found these people is I think we imagine wealthy people to be like very far removed. I mean, I don't know who even we are, but many people think of like the even like, you know, upper middle class people or whatever, think that rich people are like live in their own stratosphere. And of course, the the very, very richest do. But there are lots of pretty wealthy people in the networks of Professors or of people like me that went to, you know, I went to Brown University for undergrad, so I have a sort of elite background in that and in other ways too. But, you know, so people that I knew from college who knew people themselves, you know, it's, I'm really only not very many degrees of separation away from a lot of these people. And then some of them I got through, a small minority of them, I got through uh, progressive sort of wealthy people's organizations, organizations that are organizing rich people to, um, you know, sort of take political action. So those are where the more progressive people mostly came from.
0: Yeah, I used to hang around with some of the North Star people. That was a a very strange collection of uh, (laughs) guilt-ridden
2: rich people. Exactly. Yeah, I definitely have some of those.
0: Now, it's funny being in New York, because we're certainly a lot of very rich people here. But on the other hand, people tend to overestimate just how rich other people are I mean, they have no idea of like the, the the level of poverty uh people forget about you know the median income is not that different from the national average and you know life is quite expensive here so um there, there is that sense in which uh, an awful lot of new yorkers especially you know our kinds of circles um exaggerate the wealth of our, our our neighbors
2: yeah and i think that the people that i interviewed i mean they're i should say also you know they span a wide range um the poorest people, if you want to put it like that, that I interviewed had you know an income of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year and you know like owned their home with some debt so didn 't have a significant amount of assets and the most the richest people I interviewed had you know over fifty million or in one case I think about a hundred million dollars so that 's a quite a significant span, but most of them are in the top one or two percent you know with incomes over five hundred thousand dollars, many of them a million or two million or usually inherited assets of five to 10 to, again, you know, 50 million. So that's just one thing to say about that. I think that, though, most of the people that I interviewed would tend to overestimate the number of people above them in terms of income and wealth. And, you know, I didn't ask them how many people they thought were above them, but they certainly – those people – loom larger in their kind of consciousness, right? And I argue in the book that for the people for whom that is true, who I call upward oriented, it's actually, it's not so much, I don't think a question of like they envy people, these people, or they think that they don't have enough or whatever, but it's actually a way for them to feel like they have less and become, you know, be like, feel like they're not really affluent or they're not really rich, which many of them, I think were more comfortable not feeling affluent.
0: Yeah, they may have a house in uh, the Hamptons but they don't have a private
2: jet. Right, exactly. I mean the private jet, yeah, really loomed large for them in terms of, you know, other people. They they often compare themselves to people who were in, you know, other families in their kids private school for example and so they could say they're, you know, quote, in the middle even though they have an income of 2 million dollars a year or something when as you pointed out the the New York median is something like $52,000, maybe it's a little bit higher now but and it does mirror the national median. So the, the invisibility of people with less, I think, for many of the people that I talk to, as well as kind of in general, which you're pointing to, it is really astounding, you know, that we just do not see not even poor people, but just people at the median are kind of invisible in popular culture a lot. They're not really present, you know, in the news and so on. And so we're all kind of invested in thinking that everybody's richer than they actually are.
0: And you mentioned this already, but you you do, you uh, divide the sample into uh, upward and downward identifying people. Could you talk about who these are and what characteristics might make them one or the other, and and how they think differently?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the upward orient- oriented people, and again, you know, I think people partly my classification of individuals into these categories is just based on what they happen to say to me. And I think there's a lot of fluidity between like many people think in both of these ways, but the people who tend to use these upward oriented discourses more are people who have high incomes or are married to people with high incomes in finance or in corporate law or real estate and stuff like that. And, and as I said, they tend to be more oriented to people who have the same amount as they do or those above them. They're not thinking a lot about people with less. And I'm, and I argue that that's at least partly um, related to the fact that their social networks are quite homogenous. You know, they tend to socialize with like all people related to their, you know, the businesses that they work in or people from their children's schools and so on. And often they, they don't have a lot of um, sort of class diversity in their families. So they're just in these worlds where they don't see people who are different. Now, of course, I also argue in the book that not seeing those people is it's sort of a matter of choice. I think it's something we often think of as human nature, like, well, everybody compares themselves to people above them. But that's not really true because, of course, all these people also have, you know, working class people working in their homes and they walk past, you know, dozens of working class people or certainly people less rich than they on the street, like every single day. Right. So in some ways, these are choices, but that's kind of more of the people in that category. And then the downward-oriented people tend to be people who have, are living more on inherited wealth. So upward-oriented people and high earners often also have inherited wealth, right? They haven't necessarily, quote-unquote, earned all of the money that they have, but their identity is more invested in the idea of being earners. So downward-oriented people are the people who are more likely to be academics or work in the arts or nonprofits because they are um, also significantly supplementing their salaries with their own, you know, inherited assets or, um, capital gains or whatever. So those people tend to be sometimes more politically progressive. They're more, they have more heterogeneous networks because of partly the jobs that they work in and partly because of their politics, I think just make them a little bit more attuned to class difference in general. Some of those people, they're not all inheritors. Some of them are more upwardly mobile. So they have class diversity in their families. And, and for that reason, you know, or sometimes kind of uncomfortable with or especially attentive to what it means to have money when you didn't grow up with it. So those are the two kind of basic orientations. I think upward oriented people tend to talk less, at least with me, about their money. They were less comfortable and there was just more of like an invisible wall. It's people like that, that, you know, the woman who says like asking me my assets, is it like asking me if I masturbate? Whereas the more downward oriented people were more comfortable talking to me about it, but they were actually a little bit less willing, I think, to be publicly visible as wealthy people. You know, they were more likely to give philanthropically anonymously, for example.
0: A lot of the people you talk with seem rather uncomfortable with their privilege. And you contrast this with an earlier generation, for example, the WASP women that Susan Ostrander wrote about, uh, in which they seem much more comfortable with their privilege. What's happened over the last 30 or 40 years, do you think?
2: Yeah, well, I think partly what's happened, I mean, I I think that since, you know, maybe the early 60s, right, there was an opening of higher education to people who weren't WASPs. And, of course, I don't want to overstate the extent to which higher education has diversified in the way that we think about diversity now. But prior to the 60s, you know, there were very few Jews going to Ivy League schools, for example. So the way that that has opened and there's many more women, you know, getting college degrees and from elite institutions – Um, So partly I think there's that just the kind of almost quasi aristocracy that we think of as like that old upper class just became more diverse. Um, And also I think the rise of finance, you know, in the slightly more recent period is really important in terms of people just being paid astronomically high amounts of money that I think just didn't exist, you know, even proportionally or were very, very rare before, you know, the 1980s. Now we think of the wealthy, right? It's not the leisure class so much as, again, that kind of old aristocracy was more, but in fact, the working wealthy. And so these people who are making two to five to 10 to 50 to a hundred million dollars a year are actually working, of course, is a sort of morally laden term, but, you know, they are going to work and getting paid to do this. So they're they're not just living on sort of old assets like the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts or whatever that old class was.
0: Yeah, I think uh, work by Piketty and Zuckman and people like that have shown that, uh, you know, 100 years ago, the rich were uh, coupon clippers and now they work very, very hard.
2: Yeah, right. And I think there's also a cultural shift, too. I mean, you know, Paul Krugman talks about this this sort of way in which inequality. It's now kind of okay to get 50 million dollars when your, you know, lowest-paid or average-paid worker gets, I don't know, 400 times less than that, right? And that in the past there there was actually a cultural cap as well as sort of different moment of capitalism that was preventing that. This is something that David Brooks, of whom I am generally not a fan, wrote about in Bobos in Paradise, I think, in kind of a compelling way that there's a the, just the sort of trying to be like everybody else, just a more expensive version of that in the way that, you know, bohemian bourgeois people are, are consuming. And, and in that vein, I should say also, of course, the 60s happened, you know, not just in terms of like opening higher education, but just in terms of sort of upending a lot of the more traditional symbolic hierarchies that we had in U.S. society.
0: The people you talk to do a lot of mental work, I I imagine internally, but also in talking to you, at at justifying uh, their position. Uh, As you say, there's a cultural logic of legitimate entitlement. They come up with several strategies for uh, legitimating their position in society. They uh, pretend they're not so rich. They claim that they work very, very hard. They're nice to the help. You know, they give back through philanthropy. They raise their kids to be nice people and not assholes. Do they succeed,
2: or are they constantly anxious about this? (laughs) Right. Well, part of that question is like legitimating to whom. Right. I mean, of course, partly what they're doing and talking to me is legitimating to me. And one critique that I think could be made of the book and has been made is that it's hard to know how much of that is just some kind of external justification to me who seems, you know, I seem poorer than they are. And of course, they have to seem to care about this stuff. I think that it goes beyond that. I mean, that they are really trying to actually be sort of morally worthy people, you know, and to the extent that they can tell themselves that they are that, the more comfortable they are. Also, to the extent that they can avoid talking about it, the more comfortable they are. And that's why I think some of the you know, the upward-oriented people, they're, more of their strategy is not to talk about it and to hang out with people that are more like them, right? So it just comes up less for them. They may also be less conflicted. I mean, I think people sort of stands to reason that people who are working in finance, and many of them more politically conservative, although mostly still Democrats, or, you know, moderate r- Republicans or whatever. This is prior to Trump that I was interviewing these people. That It stands for reason that those kind of people would be a little bit less conflicted than the more liberal and progressive inheritors, right? And those liberal and progressive inheritors are more likely to articulate these conflicts. And I think their conflicts are somewhat less resolved. But overall, you know, it's really hard to know how conflicted people feel internally. Um, but they're so, you know, I talk in the book about how sensitive they are to... When Obama you know was sort of talking about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you know talking about uh, repealing the Bush tax cuts or not repealing them, and how sensitive some of the people who work in finance and and the women who are married to men who work in finance were to what they felt like were sort of accusations of of their own privilege, like very defensive about it, and that sort of made me feel like they're not really comfortable with it. And so much of their comfort with it depends on a general silence around it. You know, their silence and the silence of other people.
0: I always wonder if a lot of these people are, are, are you know, have a bad conscience or worry that the masses are going to, uh, you know, just go on a rampage and slit their throats while they sleep.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what I don't know. You know, people have said that, like, well, aren't they just afraid? You know, it's not that they feel bad, that they're just really worried that what they have is going to be taken away from them. And yeah, I think there's certainly some of that. But I also think we underestimate the extent to which wealthy people want to be moral people. You know, mostly our images of them are – they're so kind of prurient and voyeuristic and they're all about, you know, look how – what ridiculous consumers these people are. And, you know, Trump, we can talk more about Trump if you want, but Trump is a kind of touchstone of like the, exactly the opposite of the way that my interviewees want to see themselves or at least want to portray themselves.
0: Yeah, one striking thing was that they, they tend to understate their wealth. And, of course, Trump you know, exaggerates it massively. So it's a, it's a very different approach to, to money and the status that it confers.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways they fall into what used to what we used to think of as a distinction between old and new money, that Trump is the kind of new money. I mean, he's not it's not that new, right? But it's that his way of being in the world is the more new money way of just very glitzy and braggy. And, you know, that most of the people that I talk to have what we think of as the more old money way, which is more to hide it and, you know, be genteel about it and so on. I actually don't think that would that that corresponds to how old or new their money is. So in in fact, instead of that distinction, I think there's more of a distinction between people who are a highly educated, you know, cosmopolitan, all these people that New York has never, I mean, th- that Trump has never been accepted by, right? These are the people that I am talking to. Whether or not their money is new or old, they all have a certain kind of education that is kind of preventing them from spending money in that way. And I did talk to a couple of people who were, I talked to... Um, a woman who's from a kind of old money family and inherited money, although it's one of those families where all the money is now like totally dissipating because there's so many generations. And she was married to someone who had grown up without money and who was a very conspicuous spender and wanted to buy a fancy car and, you know, always eat at fancy restaurants and so on. And that was like really antithetical to the way that she thought that they should be using this money. So I'm not saying that the distinction doesn't happen at all, but I think we just need to think about a different way of, of Looking at it. And the other thing I would say um, in response to your initial question is like I think that these people Actually often felt economically insecure especially people in families that are depending on a single high income and You know again, we can say that's idiotic or you know, whatever make all kinds of judgments about how realistic that is but they do feel on their own in a world that is not, you know, society that's not going to support them if something happens to them. So it's striking to me how much, you know, the total decline of whatever welfare state we ever had in the U.S. actually exacerbates their desire to accumulate and the impossibility of their ever feeling like they have enough. And in some ways, I think that's true. I mean, you know, one person gets sick and like there goes your five million dollars that you had in the bank.
0: Yeah, you quote one guy as saying, there goes my $2 million to Sloan Kettering. But at the, at the end of the uh, book and your conclusion, you make the point that, uh, yeah, I mean, this kind of fortune is a substitute for having a civilized welfare state. Uh, but also, uh, the political preferences of even the more liberal members of the, this class uh, have been undermining this welfare state for you know, 30, 40 years. So they're kind of caught in the world they've helped create.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I don't feel sort of sorry for them in that sense. But I think that that's the reality of that feeling and the, you know, it's something that we have to take into account as something that explains their actions.
0: You have some interesting stuff on the stay-at-home mother and the, the kind of uh, family tensions that that status creates. Uh, some of the men see having a stay-at-home uh, mother as, as a, a badge of status, uh, but it creates all kinds of uh, conflict within the family over time and money. Could you talk about what goes on there?
2: Yeah, sure. I think there's two kinds. And this is, I should say, my account of this is based primarily on talking to these stay-at-home mothers themselves. So I'm not really sure what their husbands would say. You know, again, to get back to the historical piece, these are women who, if they were, you know, when Ostrander interviewed women in the 70s, maybe in the early 80s, they were perfectly content to be at home, you know, raising their kids and going to the club and doing community service. And, you know, they thought like, basically like our kind of people is better than other the masses kind of thing. Like they were more comfortable in their privilege and they were, I think quite recognized for the kind of the way that they spent their time. And now you have, you know, the women that I was interviewing are in their thirties and forties and they all have elite educations. Two thirds of them have advanced degrees. You know, almost all of them have worked as corporate lawyers or in finance or, you know, occupations like that. So for them to decide to stay home, you know, it actually does take away a lot of their self-worth, which is something that some of them, I think, felt very strongly. Definitely not all of them, but but some of them. And then they're in a situation where they aren't earning any money, and so they're dependent on their husbands economically, and they're also facing, I think, very common stereotypes about wealthy women as, you know, sort of dilettantes and, you know, hyper-consumers and self-indulgent and not really taking care of their kids because the nanny's doing it and all of this kind of stuff. And so they're really struggling to think of themselves as actually working hard because working hard is such an important basis for, you know, legitimacy of their privilege, as you said. And then they get into these things with their husbands. So sometimes the husbands are really good about sort of recognizing you are actually contributing to our life and it doesn't matter that you don't earn money and you're entitled to spend the money that I earn or that I've inherited, although mostly earn. But sometimes they're not, and they really try to control their wife's spending, and it's clear that they don't really think that the wife is entitled to spend the money as she sees fit, and that creates problems within these marriages. And my guess would be, I mean, I definitely heard a significant number of accounts of this, and my guess would be that I heard less than what's actually out there because that's an especially sensitive thing to talk about. But it really shows the way that earning the money sort of not just brings the power of spending it, but also brings the kind of moral worth that these women just don't have. And they're very invested, as I said, in sort of framing what they do as work, taking care of kids, taking care of even multiple households, doing volunteer work, often at their children's schools. And they're really invested in painting themselves as reasonable consumers so that they don't seem like these kind of spend thrifty expensive shoe wearing, you know, Birkin bag kind of people so that they can seem like they're economizing or they're cutting their own hair, or doing their own nails or shopping at Target or whatever. You know, they're all talking about that. And as you mentioned, I mean, none of them seem to be bragging about money that they had spent. And if anything, they would kind of underestimate, you know, what their house cost or whatever, whatever they had spent on whatever they were talking about.
0: Has this project changed in any way you're thinking about the politics of inequality? Because, you know, a lot of this is very individualized. They they take any kind of challenge to wealth, any mention of inequality very personally. You're just studying their, their personalities and their, their, um, their, their attempts at legitimating their status. But um, does anything that you learn from this make you think that the way we talk about this politically um, should be changed?
2: Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that what this research points to is that we need to come back to the notion of meritocracy, which is something that is so deeply taken for granted, you know, I think in the American like political culture, right? And what I see is that these people are working really, really hard to be morally worthy, right? And and we haven't talked about this, but one of the arguments I'm making is that if they don't act entitled, right, which is a kind of behavioral bad way to be to be, you know, snobby and think that you deserve it just because you're you and, you know, be lazy and so on. Um, If they don't act entitled, they actually are entitled then materially to all of the privilege that they have. And I think that that's a notion that's broadly reflected. in you know, I don't know that it's reflected in opinion polling about rich people, but that certainly in in the milieu that I live in, that there's lots of judgments of rich people on the basis of their individual consumption habits or their work or their philanthropy or whatever. And I just think we need to get away from that as a kind of mode of talking about it and talk more about distributions as legitimate or illegitimate, you know, regardless of whether the people at the top are like Warren Buffett living in his ranch house or, you know, Kim Kardashian or Donald Trump or whoever that we think of as these kind of paradigmatic over the top rich people. So I think that a different kind of conversation is what I would hope that this work would contribute to, that individuals may not ever deserve this because having these levels of inequality is pernicious for society as a whole and, you know, for democratic political culture and, you know, all the things that we know that it's terrible for. So that's the way that I would want to see that conversation go.
0: Uh, Do you, um, this is of course impossible, um, bit of speculation here, perhaps, but you talk to people like at the 98th or 99th percentile. Uh, if you had talked to people at the 99.9th, um, do you, you think you might have uh, gotten any different results? Because, you know, you look at the the Koch uh, family treats each other horribly and they're just, you know, they're publicly uh, terrible, terrible people. You know, Bob and Harvey Weinstein treat each other terribly. Uh, Harvey, of course, treats other people terribly as well, but, you know, they treat each other, each other terribly as well. Um, do you think maybe you find that kind of rich person at the very, very top more than you do you know just below it?
2: Um, I'm actually kind of inclined to say no to that, but with, with a caveat, which is, you know, I have several people in the sample who are in that 0.1%. You know, it's hard to know. I think I actually underestimate it, but I, I certainly have like maybe five or six people that I'm sure are in the top 0.1%. And those people are some of the people I've been talking about in this conversation. They're less likely to think that they're not rich even when they don't have the sort of political leanings of the more downward oriented people because, you know, they just can't not think that they're rich. They know that they're rich. And of course, you know, people can say all kinds of things to me and then go home and all be mean to each other. You know, I have no way of knowing what they're actually like. So they may be like the Koch brothers or the Weinsteins or whatever. But I think that the bigger... Question is whether the fact that I talked to so many women and especially so many stay at home mothers, as well as so many inheritors of the more politically liberal variety, you know, those are two kinds of wealthy people that I feel pretty confident about making claims about. But it was harder for me to get to male um, high income earners. And the examples you just gave are, you know, of men who are in the workplace. I mean, in a manner of speaking, and I think that they may be more likely to, you know, articulate some of the nastier elements or be more explicitly take more right wing stances. And, you know, just I, I doubt that they don't have any kind of like moral thing that they would appeal to. I just think they're probably more likely to hit the hard work piece, um, the fact that they earned it kind of thing harder. And so I have, that that's a little bit of a a gap, I think, in in the sample that I have,
0: yeah, I get that from the the guy you call Paul. He seems to be um, that kind of hard-edged, rich guy.
2: Yeah, that's, he's a hard-edged rich guy. Although he's not that rich. I mean, he's making like four hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, you know, compared him to a guy that I call Chaz, who is making, you know, I don't know, at least four times that, probably more like ten times that. And also has inherited wealth in his family, who is very careful to talk about how important it is to you know, and actually Paul talks about this too. I mean raising unentitled kids, you know consuming within your means. Yeah, Paul is the only, Paul and one woman are the only ones that have that really strong kind of republicanish you have to work for what you have discourse. And so I think that that the closer people are to feeling like they have earned the money is my guess is the, the less conflicted they're going to be about that kind of discourse. And also men just tend to be, you know, when men in these jobs tend to be farther removed from consumption. So it may be that their consumption discourses aren't, aren't going to be so um, developed. And the other thing I would say is I don't want to be saying that, you know, we shouldn't evaluate people on an individual moral level ever Right. I, I'm, I don't think that. And I think that many things that these people do in order to earn their money are not morally neutral. So that's and I and, you know, I don't really get into that in the book. But the questions of what these sort of men who are working in private equity or in hedge funds or in sort of global capitalist entrepreneurship um, are actually doing are the kinds of companies and social relations that they're fostering. You know, I think that's a little bit of a different issue. Um, that's like a question of moral action that I, I do think really matters. And what I'm trying to emphasize is the idea of, of judging individuals more on their sort of lifestyle choices and the way they act and so on.
0: That was Rachel Sherman, who teaches sociology at the New School. Her book, Uneasy Street, is just out from Princeton University Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the fourth movement of Brahms' Sextet for Strings, number one, performed by the Amadeus Quartet, with some reinforcements. Till next week, bye.